The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. It's a good reminder. comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Well, if you have one of the Bibles that you want to take with you or use this morning, those blue Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, you feel free to take that with you, our gift to you. We're looking at Genesis chapter 12, so that's the first book of the Bible, 12 chapters in. Maybe some of you have heard of Christopher McCandless. He grew up in Annandale, Virginia. And after graduating from Emory University with very good grades in May of 1990, He stopped talking to his family and he headed west in his 1982 dachshund. He abandoned his car on April 29th and he hitchhiked to the Stampede Trail in Alaska. And he headed down that snow-covered trail to begin to live off the land of an odyssey with only 10 pounds of rice, a 22 caliber rifle, several boxes of rifle rounds, a camera, and a small selection of reading material, including a field guide to the region's edible plants. McCandless lived off the land and survived more than 100 days in Alaskan wilderness foraging for edible roots and berries, shooting an assortment of game, including a caribou, all the while keeping a journal. And although he planned to hike to the coast, the boggy terrain of summer proved to be difficult, and he abandoned instead, and he, he had hid out in a camping bus left by a construction company. In July, when he tried to leave, he realized that the snow-melting, raging river was uh, putting an end to his plans. In one of his last journal entries on July 30th, he wrote, extremely weak, fault of potato seed, much trouble just to stand up starving, great jeopardy. And his last pen words were, I've had a happy life, and thank the Lord, goodbye, and God bless you all. His body was found in the bus by hunters some weeks later, and some of you may have read the book by Jack Krakauer, Into the Wild or Saw the Movie, which tells the story of McCandless's life, something like you'd read in, by Jack London on how to light a fire from middle school or something. And now he's often kind of portrayed as as a hero or somebody that we should model his virtues as his story is read in schools and about. And I wonder about that because here is a man whose life is more and more pulling away from society, cutting off all contact with people, his family, and ultimately... He starves to death in the middle of Alaska. Sheldon Van Auken, who was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, was greatly helped in coming to faith through C.S. Lewis. He once said this. He said, when you're in the jungle and you hear a hyena growl, you might mistake it for a lion. But when you hear a lion roar, you know darn well it's a lion. You see, McCandless may have thought he was doing something noble. He may have thought he heard a lion growl, but it was only a hyena. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. This was not a calling from God to get further and further away 
from people and live as a complete loner, although we may be tempted to do that. When God speaks and the lion growls, it's something different. So listen carefully as God called out Abraham in Genesis 12 and gave him a mission. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak at Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, foreshadowing. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Let me pray for us. Father, speak to each one of us. I pray that there would be joy and peace in believing and abounding in hope as we are reminded of the great, great story that runs through all of Scripture and leads us right to the feet of Jesus we ask that you'd open our eyes. Help us to see how our story fits into his story. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. For an outline this morning, I'm going to ask questions. And I'm going to try to answer the question, all right? So the first question is, is there something special about Abraham? I mean, come on. Abraham, is there something special about him? Well, yes and no. Yes, in that God called him out. But no, in that he was not more holy or godly than the rest of us. A few times in the Bible, we are told explicitly that this is not the case. Joshua 24, for example, tells us in Joshua's farewell address to the people, he says, thus says the Lord God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Naor, and they served other gods. So Abraham was in modern day Iraq, He's over here by Euphrates River, and they were idolaters. And then I took your father Abram from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Sometimes I hear people say they regret that they didn't have Christian parents, and they're, they're disappointed they haven't had a Christian upbringing. Either did Abraham, the father of our faith, had pagan idolatrous parents and God called him out not because he was great and mighty but because God is sovereign Romans 4 what shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh for if Abraham was justified by works he's got something to boast about not before God for what does the scripture say Abraham believed God and it was counted to him or imputed to him as righteousness now to the one who works his wages are not are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but trust him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Well, whose faith was counted as righteousness? 
Abraham. And who does God justify? The ungodly. Well, then what does that make Abraham? Ungodly. Okay, Abraham's mentioned three times in the first three verses of Romans 4, and then we're told that God justifies the ungodly who's Abraham. So then why then is Abraham one of the most important people in the history of the world? We've got three world religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, and they all count Abraham as the father of the faith. Many of you probably grew up singing, in children's church or in Sunday school, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so were you. So let's just praise the Lord right hand. <laughs> All right. Love that song. As I said before, the very first verse of the New Testament mentions Abraham. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we're given this genealogy in the first verses of Matthew 1, and it says 14 generations to David, or from Abraham to David. And we're shown that these key bookmarks is going to be David and before that, Abraham. So Abraham is big. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist in Luke 1, sees Jesus' birth as the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Abraham's called God's friend three times in Scripture. And so the reality is this, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, is the center point of the promises of the covenant of grace in the history of redemption. Everything before Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is leading up to it, and everything after Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3 is the Bible fulfilling it. Last week we talked about Genesis 3, and 15, that from the seed of the woman, one's going to come and it's going to crush your head, the serpent's head. And we would say that would be the acorn of the oak tree. And the acorn goes down into the ground, and that's the first promise of the gospel. Well, Genesis 12 then would be the first sprout coming out of the ground before this big oak tree is growing of all the rest of the promises of the Bible. This is the sprout coming up through the ground. It's the beginning of the oak tree, of which all the promises of God are yes in Christ, as we already read this morning. And so all of world history is related to the promises that God makes to Abraham. You're either in Abraham, in Christ, or you're not. There is blessing in these verses, and there is cursing. God blesses those who are the offspring of Abraham and those who are in him in Christ, and God curses those who are not and those who persecute the offspring of Abraham. And God is still fulfilling this promise to Abraham that all the clans or all the families of the earth will be blessed through Abraham's offspring. And so what we see in these verses is Abraham is called from the nations. He's called out. He is to be the object of God's blessing. His descendants are going to be the source of world blessing. And ultimately, the descendant of Abraham is Jesus Christ. And so, initially, what we see is one nation, a priestly nation, the nation of Israel that's going to come from Abraham. They're going to mediate God's blessings to all the nations of the world. And the foundation of Christian mission lies in these promises right here, that all the nations will be blessed in you was the gospel being preached to Abraham. It's no small promise that a few or some people might be saved, is it? 
all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God is still fulfilling that promise. All the ends of the earth are going to remember. All the families of the earth are going to remember and turn to the Lord is the end of Psalm 22. And then we see in Revelation that he's making a people for himself and he's ransomed them out of every tribe, nation, tongue, and people. And he's still bringing people to himself. We're still a part of this great commission. So how is Genesis 12 a contrast to Genesis 11? You see, if you remember Genesis 11, it's all about what man can do. It's, it's today's gospel all over again. Chapter 11, verse 4 will be a summary of man and Babel. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. That's in total contrast to Genesis 12, where God says, get out, or go from your country, your kindred, your people, to the land I will show you, and I'll make you a great nation, I'll bless you, and I'll make your name great. That's what God's going to do, so you'll be a blessing. So Genesis 12 is in contrast to Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11 is man trying to build a highway to the sky. It's the bottom-up approach. It's called religion. It's called you do it. It's all up to you and your works and your performance. And Genesis 12 is just the opposite. Is God saying to Abraham, get out. Leave your idols. Leave that approach. God's coming down from heaven to reach the nations. It's a top-down approach that calls out a people, and it's God building a nation through, through Abraham to reach the rest of the world. You see, this promise, we know, is ultimately fulfilled through Jesus Christ, who is the offspring through which the nations will be blessed. God is going to do it and has done it in sending his son. How many I will statements are in verses 1 to 7? Take a look again at your Bible there. Genesis 12, 1 to 7. When God gets going with I wills, you want to start counting them because they're usually seven. God likes the number seven. And of course, there would be seven here. So here they are. At the end of verse one, God tells him, go to the land, I will show you. I will show you. Imagine if I said to you today after church, why don't you just get in the car with me and we'll go for a ride. What would you say to me? If I said, get in the car with me, let's go for a ride. What would you say? Where are we going? And where you're, being that you're from Montgomery County, you'd want to know when are we going to be back? I mean, you know, my time is real precious here. So where are we going? When are we going to be back? How much is it going to cost? <laughs> um, you'd ask some questions, right? What did God tell Abraham? He just said, I'll show you. I will show you. He doesn't give him an answer to any of those. He's going for a ride, all right. He's going to go from, Tur from uh, Iraq, and he's going up to Haran, which is in Turkey, and then he's going to come down into Canaan, and then we're going to see the end of the chapter. He falters in faith because there's a famine, and he doesn't have a word from the Lord, but he goes down to Egypt. And we see God's faithfulness even in the midst of Abraham not trusting the Lord. So the first promise is, I will show you. Second one is, I'll make you a great nation. Verse 2a, 2b, I will bless you. 2c, I will make your name great. 3a, I will bless those who bless you. 3b, 
Him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then in verse 7, to your offspring, I will give this land. Seven promise. And in those seven promises is one massive overarching promise that in you, verse 3, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The whole Pauline concept of union with Christ some 160-some times in Paul's writings, you could say the proto-euangelion of, of in Christ is, is right here. It's in Genesis 12, verse 3, and it's in you. All the families of the earth will be blessed because in you is going to come Jesus. And if you're in Christ and you're in Abraham and the promises to you, and those seven promises are your seven promises. And what we get to Romans 4, we see that the land is no longer this little section of Canaan, this promised land. Abraham's an heir of the world. The meek are going to inherit the earth. We're going to share in the glory of God. It was not to angels that he subjected the world to come. He's still fulfilling that Abrahamic promise from Genesis. And you will inherit the earth. It's still happening. We're in process. So is this covenant a conditional covenant or unconditional? What do you think? Well, what are the first words in Genesis 12? Get out. Get thee out is the King James. O. Palmer Robertson in his classic book, Christ the Covenant, says the sovereign aspect of God's relationship with Abraham was made quite apparent at the time of the patriarch's initial call. God did not suggest meekly that if Abraham would depart from his fatherland, he would be blessed. Instead, the words came to him in terms of a, a solemn charge, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred. It's a conditional covenant. He has to obey. God will bless him, but it's assumed that you're going to have to go, Abraham. And so... How is God's call on Abraham, the first three verses, how does it get intensified? There's three commands, and they each get a little harder, don't they? So he says to him in verse 1, Get out from your country and your kindred and your father's house. This is getting harder as it went. You see, Abraham came from Ur, and you know, we want to know, well, was Abraham, was he trading up or trading down? You know, what did it look like? Well, listen, Abram was from Ur, which was a, a, a thriving, flourishing trade port city that moved, that was right, in the, in, right next to the Euphrates River, and it was a rich soil, produced corn and crops in abundance, and so Abraham probably had his, his riverfront house, probably had a nice boat. He was, he was living life. He was loving life, had lots of family and friends, and God tells him, I'm calling you out of all of that. And where are you going? I'll show you. I'll show you. Just follow me. And so he's, he's calling Abraham to leave his upward mobility, his sweet life. We're reading a book in staff right now. Or staff me. It's just called Uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. There's a part of our Christian life that should be Uncomfortable. Embrace it. If everything is comfortable, all the songs you sing, all the people you greet, all the people you mingle with, all the people you open your home to, all that you do, if it's all comfortable, we should begin to question that because so much of what Jesus calls us to is not comfortable. And this is not an easy call for Abraham, is it? Get out. And so... 
It gets harder in this call because ultimately he's calling him to give up what's precious to him, your nuclear family, your father's household. What was the first thing that Jesus said to the disciples? I mean, he tells them, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And they left their nets and followed them. And there's dad and the fishing business of generations. And hey, where, where are you guys going? They got called. How's God's call on Abram similar to Jesus' call on us? Didn't Jesus say to us in Matthew 10, 37 to 39, whoever loves father or mother more to me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more to me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's pretty uncomfortable. John Calvin refers to Abraham's faith in verse 1. In trusting the bare word of God. He calls it the verbum nudum. For you Latin folks, the naked word of the Lord. What was Calvin referring to? Well, God didn't give him any more than just, I will show you. You see, this is something that God often does. Is he calls us and he, and he doesn't always give us every little thing. We're to live by faith, not by sight. You ever seen heaven? You ever seen hell? You ever seen angel? You ever seen demons? You ever seen Jesus? I mean, I talked to a lady once in my car, and she told me that she'd seen Jesus, you know, and she'd been to heaven. I was like, yeah, uh-huh. As I was trying to witness to her, and then, yeah, that's another story. But there are people that think they have seen all that, but we are called to live by faith. A.W. Pink put it like this, The Lord's commands are rarely accompanied with reasons, but they're always accompanied with promises. There's so much that we don't know. We see in a mirror dimly, but someday we're going to see face to face. I know now in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. We, there's only two ways of living, by faith or by sight. And how are you living this morning? Are you living for the world to come because you know that these truths are true and that hope has come and that we are living for that life is breaking in on this life and it's changing decisions of how we are going to live this life. Who we're going to spend time with and conversations that we're going to have and how we spend our money and how we're going to pray and how we're going to build and cultivate affections and what we're going to prioritize our time with. These are important things. How do Abraham's, how do God's promises to Abraham make up for what he's giving up. You know, he just tells him a couple times here that it's going to be better what I'm giving you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation from you. All the families of the earth are going to be blessed through you, and to your offspring, I'll give this land. The things that we're giving up in this life you know, what Paul says, you know, if the resurrection isn't true, I mean, he's just saying, we're to be pitied of all men. We have made a stupid choice of life. You know, I mean, it, what, are we, what is Paul doing all this suffering and 39 lashes, you know, five times on his back and just getting thrashed and beaten with rods and shipwrecked and left for dead? And I mean, he had a rough life. He's not having a rough life now. You see... 
The saints of old have always lived for eternity, for what's going to be lasting, what's permanent. Our citizenship is in heaven. And Abram lived by faith that what's to come is greater than this world. And so as he goes now, he begins to um, make altars and worship. And John Calvin just says, Abram endeavored as much as it in him lay to dedicate to God every part of the land to which he had access and perfumed it with the odor of his faith. That's what you're called to do now, is to go and perfume those workplaces with your faith as you honor the Lord in, in the very places where he has called you and put you. Now what's striking about this chapter, and I'm just going to read the end as we follow this story here, because what you're going to see in the story of Genesis is you're like, this keeps happening. You think, well, isn't everything going to be wonderful now? I mean, God's made a promise to Abraham. He's told him all these promises, sevenfold promises, so we're good to go. Then all of a sudden you get to verse 10. It says, now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was very severe in the land. Did he have a command to go down to, to Egypt? What's he doing there? When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they'll kill me, and and they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, what does that sound like to you? Does that sound like, Faith operating itself in love or fear operating itself out of selfishness. He's completely afraid after all these promises have been made, he's already vacillating in unbelief. And you're going to see this theme running throughout Genesis. Faith being exercised and then fear and then unbelief. But look what God does. So it says, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now, you didn't have to finish at the top of the class to catch a massive foreshadowing. Who's reading this first? Who's hearing this first? Who's the original hearing audience? Moses is writing this. And who's he writing it to? We don't know exactly when the people of God would have received this, whether they were in Egypt or coming out of Egypt or in the middle of bondage to Pharaoh or having recently been delivered and now they're in the wilderness. But we know that we are told of a story of where some guy was sinning and, and, and the matriarch of the story, we gotta have a child because through you, 
All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through your offspring, and I'm 75 years old, and there's no child yet, and here we've got Sarai, and the next scene, we've got the matriarch in big trouble, and she's no longer sleeping with Abram, who's called father of many. Or he's, going to, he's called exalted father. He's going to be called Abraham. He's going to be changed from daddy to big daddy. And we ain't got any kid yet. And now she's sleeping and she ain't even in his bedroom anymore. We got ourselves a problem. How are we going to get Sarai back to her husband? God did it. Despite his sin and his, his vacillation here, God is doing something greater where sin abounds. Grace abounds all the more. And God's going to work through this. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go sin and go do something stupid. But isn't it interesting that when God makes a promise, he's going to fulfill it. He's going to keep his promise. And so he's going to deliver his people. And so God's people would have read this story and realized, ha, that's what God did for us. I mean, here we have a Pharaoh. We got plagues. And we have the Pharaoh coming and saying, get out with all your stuff. And we have great blessing of male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels, and all this blessing going to Abraham. Because God said, I will bless you. And if anybody curses you, they're going to be cursed. They're going to be in big trouble. And so we see God is going to fulfill his promise. And we're going to see that run through the rest of the story. And ultimately, this story leads us to this one offspring. We have this collective promise through offsprings. It's going to go through Isaac and through Jacob and then through Judah. And then the promise is going to continue. But ultimately, the, the offspring is going to come down to a baby born in Bethlehem, Jesus, come to save us from our sin. And so Jesus is now building his church and this promise is still being fulfilled that, that all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. But he uses us. And sometimes we, we screw up and we make mistakes. But we are called, just as Abram was called, with a great commission we've been given. And if we've been given this commission, then we need to open our mouths, invite people to church, invite them to a Bible study, invite them to ch check out this link, listen to this sermon. Check out this quote and plant seeds and go and tell because God is building his church and we don't know who he's going to bring in to himself. But we have to trust him that we are on our way and he is going to fulfill these promises. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have come. We thank you for all the promises being fulfilled in you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you just didn't come to the cross. You came as a baby, fulfilled the whole law your whole life, and you've given us your very righteousness and paid for all of our sins on a cross. We thank you for new life in Christ and a mission that you have given to us. May we not be afraid like Abraham, looking at people that we think are intimidating, scary. We thank you for your faithfulness and fulfilling your promises. And we ask that you would use us, even this week and this Christmas season, 
May we not be ashamed of the gospel. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.